Good evening. Is that a question? It's because I said, <laughs> I came in and said good morning to somebody. That threw me off, so I said good afternoon. I think it's actually good evening. Does that seem appropriate? It's good it's evening. It's good to see you tonight, and I'm going to figure out the time zone and everything here shortly. <laughs> Philippians chapter 2 is where we are tonight. Someone asked me, my brother actually, he preaches in uh, Virginia, the Newport News area. He's a gospel preacher. He asked me, have you gotten your preaching legs yet? I didn't know what that meant. I think I sort of had an idea. I said, oh, it's coming along just fine. And uh, I think it's going well. And then I, I started preaching. And I feel like I want to say about a thousand words at one time in trying to get all of everything that I know in one sermon. So I'm going to try to pace myself and be better along those lines and try to slow down a little bit. We are going to be here, so we got time. <laughs> we have been talking about perspective, Paul's perspective specifically. And just to remind you, the word means a particular attitude toward or way of regarding something, a point of view. Uh, we're talking about then our outlook and how we process information. And the reason that's so important is, well, there are a bunch of reasons why that's so important, but among them would be that furlong, downtrodden, pessimistic, and sad saints is not what we ought to be. That is not who we are, and that's not who God calls us to be. There is harmony and balance in God. In fact, he's perfectly harmonious. He's perfectly balanced. While as humans, we tend to drift to extremes. And so we tend to take a side of a thing. Something happens and you find us on one side. And somebody will go to the furthest extreme of one position and then somebody will go to the farthest extreme over here in the exact opposite way. And the truth is, there's balance. There's harmony. It really does depend very often in life on how you look at it. Take, for instance, this suggestion that people make sometimes. They tell us, get out of your comfort zone. Well, okay. I think I know if you're stuck and stagnant and stale and, and you're struggling and somebody says, well, what you need is to get out of your comfort zone. That's probably very good advice depending on the circumstance. On the other hand, if you're a faithful Christian, your family and people who know you might say things like, you're always at worship. You're always reading your Bible. Come on and leave that alone. Have some fun. Get out of your comfort zone. Well, if your comfort zone is faithful, don't you ever get out of your comfort zone. I mean, stay right there and stay as comfortable as you possibly can. It would depend on the perspective and the position in which you're speaking about a thing. As we read the book of Philippians, it's important to remember that Paul is in prison. And yet, through inspiration, he's writing these things, and his perspective is anything but downtrodden, hopeless, and pessimistic. In fact, it's upbeat, and it's constantly encouraging. Sometimes you hear people say, find the good in the situation. And other people say, there is no good in this situation. Here's the truth of the matter. There is good in every situation. And it doesn't exist because you find it. It's there whether you find it or not. How do I know? Because if you're a Christian, Christ is with you in every situation. Now, how are you not going to get good in that? Remember, Paul is in prison. You know what? He didn't go and search for the good in it. He just said, it's here. Look back at chapter 1. He states it as a fact. It exists. 
It's here. Verse number 12, Paul says, now I want you to know, brethren, I want you to know this. This is the fact. This is the way it is. Brethren, that my circumstances have turned out unto the greater progress of the gospel. That's true, period. I didn't have to go seek it and find it. No, that's absolutely the way it is. In fact, he continues, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. That's good and it's present. And that most of the brethren trust in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Those are the facts. There's good here. Where? In prison. But you were falsely accused. I was. But you were beaten unjustly. I was. And yet in this dynamic, there's good. And where's Christ? With me in prison. What do we do? We sang and we prayed. Isn't it always good to sing and pray? Amen. It's good to sing and pray. Paul says that's what we did at midnight. We sang and we prayed. And we furthered the cause of Christ. There's good here. In chapter 2, he's instructed the saints about the mind of Christ. He's encouraged them, have this mind in you. He will say later in the book that have this attitude. This is the attitude that you should have. Everybody who's perfect needs to have this attitude. He's been talking about that. And as he continues, he's encouraging them to live like Christ. Don't just move from thinking like Christ. Allow that to move you to live like Jesus. Be like him. In fact, I meant to when I started to tell you, if you don't remember anything else from the sermon, remember the song we sung before we started. You remember the last song? Yes, no, maybe so? You remember it? You remember what you sang? Because you sang and you sounded beautiful. I don't know. Logan, how did it sound you up here? It sounds great. I've heard every song leader say this is the best place to hear the wonderful singing that's being done here. But do you hear and do you remember what you sang? You said, when peace like a river, I wish I knew the rest of the song. <laughs> when sorrows like sea billows roll, I think you said, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. If you don't remember anything else tonight that we say, please remember that from tomorrow through the time we see each other again, it will be well with your soul because God has secured your soul through the blood of Jesus Christ. We sing it. We have to believe it and live it. It is well with my soul. That's what Paul is saying from his prison. It is well with my soul. The first thing he addresses in verse number 12 is the encouragement, exhortation to take personal responsibility for your faith. He's talked about the exaltation of Christ through humiliation, his humbleness, his servanthood, and his ultimate glory as a result of his obedience to, Christ, to God, even the death on the cross. He says in verse number 12, so then, this transition, or wherefore, just as you have always obeyed, he encourages them do to these two things. You have always obeyed in my presence, but now not much more in my absence. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Number one, as you have always done. In other words, keep being faithful. Now he says, much more than in my absence. The reason for that, well, as he is apart from them, it's amazing when faithful and strong people are with you, it gives you a lot more incentive to be strong and faithful. When they are apart from you, sometimes it's a little more challenging. Paul's exhortation is, even though we're apart, now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. 
There is a blessing in constant faithfulness. You've always been faithful. Great. Keep being faithful. We just talked about the things that it does back in chapter 1. Number one, it strengthens the possessor. The person who is faithful and continues to be faithful gets more and more strength from that faithfulness. Paul would say it this way to the brethren in Corinth. Though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Constant faithfulness strengthens the possessor. The second thing it does is it blesses the brethren. When you can be counted on for faithfulness, it will not just bless and strengthen your life. How do you accomplish the next hurdle? How do you overcome it? By the success of the previous hurdles that you had. It strengthens you for the next thing, but it blesses those around you. Paul says, as we read, the things that have happened unto me have fallen unto the furnace of the gospel, and many of the brethren have waxed bold by my bonds. My faithfulness has helped their faithfulness. It benefits the cause of Christ. Paul says these things have furthered the cause of Christ. They've not hindered it. My beating, my imprisonment has furthered the cause. Number four, it provides help for the world. Everyone in the palace, Paul says, knows about my bonds. The hope of the world is the church. Paul says, if you've always been faithful, keep being faithful. He then says, work out your own salvation. Three things, whenever you're reading a New Testament epistle, you'll probably read, especially by Paul, some introduction to whom he's writing, and he's writing to a congregation of God's people. And so you open up the book of Corinthians, and you'll read to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to the Galatian brethren, to the churches of Galatia, to the church, if he were to write one, it would be to the church at Westside. It's always to a congregation, but that's only one aspect. Because secondly, the message is also written, it's always personal and individual. You and I as recipients, if you will, of the letter are not to hear it purely as a congregation. We're to look in there and find it for ourselves. What does this mean and how does it apply to my life? The Judaizers are having some effect Certainly at the brotherhood at large, but even here in the faithful church at Philippi, you can tell by the things that Paul is writing. He's concerned about their unity. He addresses it several times, chapter 1, chapter 4. He talks about the fact of unity. He talks about the walk being affected. The reason it's being affected is because of these false teachers. He talks about Eodia and Syntyche, not living in harmony, chapter 4. And so there's always the broader understanding of, yes, it's written to a congregation, but inside of that, I'm a member of that congregation. And as such, Paul says then, work out your own. If you are a Christian, you are saved. And if you're saved, that means you are a disciple. If you are a disciple, that means you are a student who has enrolled. And if you've enrolled, that means you're a soldier in the Lord's army. And if a soldier, that means you're at war. It also means, depending on how and which passage we're reading, it means you're an athlete. It also means that you're a farmer. Really doesn't matter the metaphor. You could be a farmer, and therefore you're planting and you're sowing and reaping. You could be an athlete, and therefore you're, you're running and you're training. You could be a soldier, and therefore you're equipping yourself for a fight. It doesn't matter which one is being used. The point is, every one of them is actively engaged in the effort. Every one of them is doing something to further and strengthen their ability to succeed. 
The health and wellness industry is, I'm told, over a billion dollars industry. And it's so successful because it keeps telling us to do, well, something that in our minds, at least we all want to do. We want to work out. We want to feel better. We want to get into better shape. And not only do they tell us that, they tell us, you know, there's actually a shortcut. If you would just, and then they give us 90 days to lose, 15 days to lose, take this pill and lose, do this and lose. And with our eagerness and desire, well, we try and try and try. Oftentimes, to no avail, we don't actually have success because the truth of the matter is there is no shortcut. It will just simply take hard work and lots of it. And the results are slow in coming. Same, though, is true for our spiritual health and well-being. The inner man needs to work out. It's how the Bible actually couches it in language of a person working out. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14 talks about having our senses exercised by reason of use. Paul will talk to the brethren of Corinth about running a race and beating the air, fighting a fight. We all want to do it, but the same rules generally apply. Work has to be done. There are no shortcuts. We want to lose weight. We want to get the excess of sin and laziness and other things out of our lives. Well, the same things apply. You've got to stop some things and you've got to start some things. I'm always uh, uh, amused when people say, well, you just give me an answer. And they want uh, a complicated answer in two minutes and 30 seconds in the foyer. I, I wish we could just microwave every answer and just get, it will take time. How long do you got? How long do you have? Well, I ain't got that kind of time. Well, you're never, gonna, you're never going to get the depths of God's word if you don't have time. You're never going to strengthen your spiritual man if you don't have time. You are never going to be what you want to be in the Lord if you don't have time and energy and effort. It will take time. You must work out. I trust that you have read in your Bible and seen that the same language to describe your physical man is used to describe your spiritual man. That the same general rules apply that this physical man needs to eat, he needs to drink, and he needs to move. He's got to do something. But then Jesus talks about his word as being food, bread, John chapter 6, and water, John chapter 4. You have to eat and drink. And now you have to move. You have to actually take that and exercise. You can't just look in the mirror. You got to be a doer of the work. And you can no more be successful here being a couch potato than you can here. You can no more be successful here by eating bad and doing nothing than you can here. And often it's the case. And what does Paul say? You've always been faithful in my presence. Fantastic. I've been with you, but now I'm absent. What do you need to do? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's the third thing. The third thing with regards to this specific and individual thing is salvation is not a congregational activity. It's a personal privilege. We have seen in our last several years that being faithful is not about being at the building. That sometimes being faithful is not even necessarily ideally it would be, but sometimes we be separated from each other and not even allowed to be around each other and still need to be faithful. We've seen that salvation is yours and that many who have lost their way may be misunderstood. 
Because while it is a congregational group activity, it is a personal privilege and responsibility. Some in Philippi may have been giving in to the challenge of these false teachers. Some may have been beginning to listen. It sounds like the early stages of maybe those beginning to to give way. Maybe the false teachers are, are getting a foothold. Notice a passage like 127. There Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Chapter 2, we read, do nothing, and he listed all of these things. Esteem others better than yourself. Prefer others. Put others in front of you. Don't give in to selfishness and self-ambition. Have this mind which was in Christ. That's the mind you need. He ends verse 12 by saying, with fear and trembling. It certainly is a fearful thing. Error is. And the working out of our salvation needs to be done with reverence and awareness of the magnitude of what's involved. You hear the apostles and the prophets in the New Testament genuinely concerned about God's people. And what this error would do to them if it were followed. A following error is a threat to the salvation of a child of God. Because inevitably it would lead a child of God away from God. You hear Peter talking about it in 2 Peter 2. There were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. Who privily will bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. It will destroy the faith of those people. Paul talks about the fact that Hymenaeus and Philetus and others have made shipwreck of people's faith. They will exploit you and take advantage of you, Peter says. They will give you the wrong doctrine. They will give you the wrong direction. They will lead ultimately to the wrong destination. They're there in Philippi. Look at chapter 3. Notice what he says in verse number 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you, listen to Paul, even weeping, even weeping, I'm telling you, even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. These people are in the Lord's church in the first century. They're wreaking havoc from congregation to congregation, and Paul is urging the Christians, brethren, you have always been faithful. Keep being faithful. Don't get out of your comfort zone. No, no, stay with Jesus. Stay right there and work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Number two in verse number 13, remember God. Paul says in verse number 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do his good work or for his good pleasure. Sometimes when you start to have troubles and challenges in life, one of the things that affects your perspective is constantly thinking you're alone, constantly thinking you're the only one. I think I mentioned last week, God's people don't always have the right perspective. We do have Elijah. And Elijah's perspective was just wrong. It was just not as it ought to have been. He thought he was alone, and God assured him, I have 7,000 heaven bowed the knee to Baal. You've never been alone, Elijah. I've been with you. There have been others who are here with you. There are people who are faithful. There's always a remnant. You're never alone. Paul wants the brethren to remember that. It's God, actually, 
Who is at work in you? The salvation that they have is the result of God's work in Christ. They were once Gentiles, estranged from God, now saved. They were saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Their salvation is the result of God and his love for them and for the world. Their salvation is the result of Jesus and his death upon the cross. That salvation has been revealed, brought to them by the apostle Paul through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The language is stronger. It is God is with you. In fact, God is at work in you. It's one of the things that would get you up in the morning, get you going in the morning. What if instead of believing, I can't believe I have to face another day, I woke up with the understanding that God is with me and God is in me and God is going to help me through the day. Paul's language here is not as strong as it is to other congregations. You read his language to the Galatian brethren. They are drifting. The Philippians are not. But the Galatians are moving away from God. And so the language is much stronger. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Galatians 3, 1 to 5. Much stronger. In fact, he refers to them as foolish Galatians. They are drifting away. What if they remembered that God was at work? God is at work in you. Chapter 3 here in this book, he says, Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you, it's no trouble to me. It's a safeguard for you. It's your, for your good. It's God who is at work. He says two things about God's work. It's both to will and to work. To what end? For his good pleasure. God has you in mind to will and to intend. God has you in mind. God's work is that he intends for you to accomplish his work. Someone has said, no hands but our hands, no feet but our feet. It's God whose will he's trying to accomplish through us. We read passages like 1 Timothy 2 and verse number 4, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants that to happen more than anybody on the planet. And who is he going to use to get that done? His people. How then are they going to be successful? Because God is working through them and with them. Is it not amazing what these 12 men accomplished in the New Testament? Those apostles sent out by Jesus, the church that covered the world with this good news, is it not amazing what they were at? Yes, because God was at work in them. But go back from the beginning and just read your whole Bible. How did all of these people do all of these amazing things? Noah and the ark, Abraham and the offering of his son, and then there's Moses in Egypt, and Esther in Persia, and Daniel in Babylon, and Joseph in e You just keep marching through the Bible, and these young people sometimes, older people, doing amazing things. How? Why? Not because they were so special, but because God was at work in them, and that same God is at work in you for his good pleasure. Verse number 14, as you're going about doing that, imitate Christ. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. We tend to read the Bible and we just kind of hedge and fudge and kind of just, we just round the edges on things. I know it said do all things, but surely it can't mean that, can it? <laughs> There's no way it can mean It does. It means exactly that. It does not mean some things, most things. It says just what it means. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, without grumbling, to murmur, to mutter, to, to thinking of a man, deliberating within himself, a, a thought inward of reasoning. Again, why did Israel fail? Well, go back and read the Old Testament and see if murmuring wasn't their downfall. If murmuring and complaining 
wasn't their downfall. And watch as you read their history how frequently the murmuring and complaining followed a great triumphant victory. Right after something amazing happens, it's as if you read three more verses and they completely forgot the amazing thing that just happened. Take Exodus 14, for example, as they cross the Red Sea, which again, saying the words really doesn't do justice. We just say it. I don't have any other way to do it than to just say they crossed the Red Sea. But isn't there more to it than that? Didn't they stand on one side of a body of water and didn't they watch as it opened? And then they watch as it congealed. And then they march through on dry. Wait, this happens every day, doesn't it? <laughs> no big deal here, nothing to see here. I mean, this kind of thing just, yeah, we just did that. And you get to chapter 15, and they rejoiced, and they, they, they skipped and danced, and they celebrated, and they praised God. And by the end of chapter 15, they're murmuring and complaining. You open up chapter 16. They're going to murmur and complain right after the manna comes from heaven. They're going to murmur and complain. What happens in chapter 17? Oh, that's right. They murmur and complain over and over and over again. Numbers 12, Aaron and Miriam murmur against Aaron, uh, Moses. Numbers 13 and 14, the ten spies and Israel murmur against Moses and Aaron, Joshua and Caleb. Number 16, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram murmur and lead the people, 120 of them, against Moses and Aaron in attempted overthrow. Maybe it's the case that sometimes because of the goodness of God and because of the blessings of God, you could be led, one could be led to become unthankful and therefore murmur and complain. See it in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's kind of interesting. You'd almost think the exact opposite. You would think if I didn't have, boy, and then if I received, I would be so thankful I would never murmur and complain. God seems to be warning them of just the opposite, that sometimes it comes from a place of prosperity. Sometimes it comes from a place of goodness. Sometimes the, the circumstances in which you live are so good, you grow tired and weary of that goodness and start to believe and grow an expectation of deserved and somehow scoff at these wonderful blessings. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 10, he says, Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into a land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a great and splendid cities. But note this phrase, which you did not build. Houses full of all good things, which you did not fill. Hewn cisterns, which you did not dig. Vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant. And you eat and are satisfied. You'd just be so thankful, wouldn't you? Verse number 12 says, then beware, but then watch yourselves so that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. What would happen if they forgot? Well, they would become unthankful, and they would start murmuring and complaining. It's amazing, is it not? And I'm not talking about anybody. That's one good thing about being new. I don't know anything. <laughs> I, I don't know anything. And so that you will know, nobody has told me anything. But it is amazing the, the level of prosperity and ease you can have 
and the things about which you can find yourself complaining. The level of prosperity and ease and the things that can absolutely upset your whole day and bother you and irritate you and have you just in a terrible way. What's happening is you may not realize at some point you stopped being thankful for this. You stopped expressing that thankfulness. You and I can get so comfortable in this that we grow to believe we deserve this, have a right to this, and not only this, to make sure nothing ever impedes it, detracts from it, hinders it in any way. And if you do, you know, you could get to the point where waiting in a line is exceedingly stressful. You might find yourself leaning on your horn. You might find yourself angry at the Starbucks attendant. What is taking so long with my cafe latte, my uh, cappuccino? What in the world? <laughs> I asked for a grande, and how dare you give me? I asked for two scoops of caramel. Can't believe this. You know what? This lady at the grocery store today, the grocery Yes, at the grocery store. She jumped right in front of me. I just like to give her a piece of my, the grocery store line, she jumped, yes, I'm going to bed. I ain't going to make it. I'm just done for the evening. When you and I become unthankful, it will lead to selfishness and self-centeredness. If you do that among a family or a group of people, it will absolutely destroy the unity of that place. It will ultimately be an insult to God and directed at those who represent him. Paul has just talked about Christ in verse 5 following down to about verse 8. And he talked about Christ going to the cross, taking on flesh, becoming a servant, and ultimately dying. Let me ask you, as you have read the gospel account, where is Christ murmuring and complaining? Peter says of Jesus, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. Where did Jesus turn against God or against man? To whom did Jesus complain and murmur? Friends, it never happened. In order to have the mind of Christ, and you follow from verse 5 down to this point, to do all things without murmuring and complaining. In another passage, Paul would say, in everything, give thanks. How do you avoid murmuring and complaining? Keep giving thanks. Hard to give thanks when you're murmuring and complaining. Hard to murmur and complain when you're giving thanks. To what purpose? Verse 15 and 16. So that, that's how the verse opens. That's the purpose. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. There's always this juxtaposition of God's people and the devil and his people. There's always this balance and this 
this, this comparison, this, this light and this darkness, this good and this evil, this, this right and this wrong, this heaven and this hell. This, there's always that. And here you hear Paul addressing the brethren saying, listen, you're different from them. You shouldn't behave the same way. You shouldn't have the same outlook. They shouldn't see in you what they see in them. The verse opens with, so that, in order that you might prove yourselves blameless. Well, who would be blaming you? Harmless. Who would you be harming? Innocent. Children of God, above reproach. And then he explains, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights. The charge to the brethren is to, again, be mindful of your influence. Hold the word of God. That's the charge. Holding fast the word of life. He has said that back in chapter 1 and verse 27. Strive together for the faith of the gospel. Who's doing that? Well, Paul has already talked about he's doing it. Timothy's doing it. He will address him in the next section, beginning in verse 19. He'll say of Timothy, I have no man so like-minded as myself who will naturally care for your state. He's doing it. Iodia and Syntyche, you need to do it. Epaphroditus, well, he's doing it. Listen, he is your faithful minister. He opens by saying, I'm writing to the bishops and the deacons and the saints. The congregation is doing it. Chapter 4 and verse 15, he says of this congregation that they had cared for him. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the manner of giving and receiving, but you alone, they have been doing it. What's the exhortation? Keep doing it. Keep living the life. Keep being faithful. Sometimes it can feel like as children of God, why do we keep doing this? Why do we keep doing this? It seems like we're going through the moment. It seems like it's road. It's the same old thing over and over. Yes, keep on being faithful. You shine as lights in the world. If the world is already dark and the Christians are the light, what happens if you turn off the light? The church is not asked by God to go into a room and to work out a program to help the world. God didn't ask the church to do that. The church is not told, you go in a corner and figure it out. That's not what the church is told. And to the world and to the principalities and powers and heavenly places, the church is the answer for the world. That's God's answer. The world is in darkness, yes. The world is desperate, yes. The world lies in wickedness, yes. And what God does is call people out of the world into his son and then says, go back into that world and light the way for them. Those people have to have a different perspective. Those people have to know who they are in relationship to God, in relationship to themselves, and in relationship to that world. Those people have to be thankful people. Those people have to be faithful people. Those people have to be people who rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. The same things in this life that happen to those people will happen to these people. But they will just have a very different perspective on how to process it and deal with it. The church was being influenced by error. 
and that error concerned the Apostle Paul, and it should concern us today. The warnings are more stringent in some books, but the content of Philippians demonstrates that there was at least some rumblings, the beginnings of some inroads and effectiveness, and you hear Paul calling to the brethren, be mindful of your own personal faithfulness to God and keep on keeping on. The world needs your light. Please keep shining it in this world. It might be the case that you're not a Christian tonight, and if it is, as the Apostle Paul stood before Agrippa, he says, I would that you, not only you, but everybody was as I am except for these bonds. That's the reason we offer the invitation is because everybody needs what we have been blessed to have. Everybody needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. And friends, if you haven't obeyed the gospel, we beg and implore you to do that while you still have time. Sometimes you hear people say Christianity is the best life to live, even if it's not true. That's not true. Christianity is the best life to live only because it is true. And friends, if that's not the life you're living, then friends, you're missing out on life. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Change your heart, change your mind, repent of your sins, confess his name, and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins, and let God, through Jesus, save you tonight. Arise, as we've seen a couple of times over the last two weeks, people come and become part of God's family. You should do the same. We can help you in any way. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.